Exodus chapter 9, as we've learned so far in the book of Exodus, is a very, again, bleak situation for the Egyptians. And what is happening here is God is displaying His power and His mercy. And that display of power and mercy to to Israel, even to the Egyptians at some points, should lead to contrition and change. And I hope that is what we get today, is that that message is not just for the Egyptians or the Israelites, but that is for each one of us who are in Christ Jesus or who are not in Christ Jesus. That God's display of His power and His mercy to us should lead us to contrition, remorse over sin, and change. And so if you would, if you're there at Exodus chapter 9, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. Exodus chapter 9 says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the side of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. So the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, and on the servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people, and will not let them go, go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day that it was founded until now. Now therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, 
very heavy hail, such as never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands, hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hand to, hands to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, this is your word, and we need to submit to it, God. You are a holy God, worthy of affection and and adoration and worship, God. And I pray that, God, your word would be a warning to us to, to cease from sin, to fight sin, God, to put it to death in our lives, and that, God, we would pay attention to your word, Lord. I want to lift up right now things that are going on in our own life and congregation. God, I'm so thankful that uh, we have Jeremy Paul with us this morning. Thank you for his life and the Dew Forest Parade for health, God, for him, and that, God, he would grow into the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. I thank you that we were able to celebrate Mr. Zeke's 90th birthday, God, a, a life and a legacy that is filled with faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank you for bringing Mr. Zeke to the knowledge of yourself and displaying your power and your love through him. Lord, I pray for Miss Ruby's grandbaby right now, that God that's in the ICU, I ask that you would just bring healing. God, you would be with the doctors and nurses that will be caring for this baby, and that God, you would have mercy. And Lord, I do pray for right now the neighborhoods that our members live in, God is that you have not messed up in where you have placed us, God. You have sovereignly orchestrated where we are to live so that we would be a light, so that people, even in our neighborhoods, would know the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Use us, God, as your instruments. Give us stamina. Give us grace. Let us be bold with this good news that we've experienced and that we now have, God, so that we may make disciples of all nations. For their good and for your glory alone. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. So God's, God displays his power and his mercy in these plagues. So that it would lead the people who are seeing these things to contrition, remorse over their sin and shame. And so what we're going to see today is in three points. Is who this God is. What we're going to see is that first he's the God of the beast. Second, he's the God of boils. And third, he's the God of bad weather. I know, cheesy, right? Three Bs, right? The God of beasts, boils, and bad weather. But that took me the majority of the week to come up with. But this is who God is. 
This is who God is. And look in the first seven verses. That God in this pestilence of the livestock dying in Egypt is that God shows himself that he is sovereign even over, not just man, but even over animals of the land. You know, it's one thing to bother me. It's one thing to annoy me, maybe even insult me, make me feel uncomfortable, right? Bug me. But it's a whole nother thing when you start, like, damaging my property, and you start, you know, dinging my car up or try, trying to burn down my home or something like that. That's on a whole new level, right? It's one thing to annoy me. It's another thing to damage property because at that point, you're, you're, you're harming or damaging things that contribute to my livelihood, that contribute to my flourishing and my growth in this world. It's not annoyance anymore. It's not inconvenience. This is actually hurting my ability to flourish. And this is what's happening in the plague on the livestock, right? This is a next level up for God. Is that the death of the livestock is something significantly different than what they've experienced so far with gnats and flies and frogs and the, and, and the blood, right? Something completely different because frogs and flies and gnats, they're annoying. Searching for water may be inconvenient, but this is a whole new level of plague right here. Look at these verses. Is that first, just to draw your attention back to chapter 8, you know, the magicians in chapter 8, they recognize the, the plague as this is the finger of God, right? This is the finger of God. This is his work. Now, look at what changes in verse 3. Is that now God's going to bring out his what? His, the hand of the Lord. Man, you thought the finger of God was bad? Wait till you get the taste of the hand, right? That's what's getting, it, it's, it, it's getting extreme here. And this plague is different than the other ones. This one is the first one that involves death. There's something that is dying here. And that's, it's not just something that's dying. It's something that's significant to the Egyptians that is dying, right? It's the death that is of something valuable to them. It's different. The things, the livestock animals that God gave to creation to help them flourish and grow, right, is now being taken away from them. And I don't know if we understand the magnitude of their livestock dying. David and Melvin, would you raise your hands for us real quick? Let me just ask you, a, yeah, would you raise your hand? Let me just ask you a question. Y'all work with cows and cattle. Let's say, let me ask you this. Would it be significant if your cattle dropped dead instantly? Yes, yes. Do you think that would disrupt your way of life? Do you think it would disrupt your livelihood, maybe flourishing? Do you think it would mess up your well-being, maybe even your sanity? Yeah, yeah. It's significant that livestock are dropping dead immediately. But man, you ask people who work with cattle, and that would be a significant loss to them, right? It would be a significant loss. And so this is miraculous what's happening here. But this plague of livestock dropping dead, where death is now associated with these plagues, is that this plague is a prequel of what is to come, a prequel of the last plague, is that the death of their animals is an eerie warning of what to expect if they continue in this trajectory. It's a heads up, right? I was reading this past week on uh, pandemics and things that have come up, different uh, sicknesses, diseases that have kind of widespread like swine flu and bird flu. I, I, it sounds weird why I would even look into these things, but just interested. And uh, mad cow disease, and to my knowledge, 
all of these were first identified in animals, and then it spread to humans, and humans started catching it. The death of the animals, the sickness of the animals, was like a bad omen for what is to come. It's going to spread not just to animals, but to even human beings. And this is the case with Egypt, is that what is happening to their livestock here is a, it's a heads up. It's a taste. It's a warning saying, look, more death is to come if you continue in your rebellion and your rejection of God. Your rebellion will cost you the life of your livestock. It will cost you the life of your firstborn, the last plague, and it's going to cost you your own life. The death of the livestock is a warning. It's a signal. It's God's merciful way of saying, stop, because down the road, it's going to get even worse for you. It, isn't God so merciful to send this signal, sign, warning, stop what you're doing? Are you heeding his warnings, or are you continuing in rebellion? And Pharaoh didn't believe it, right? Pharaoh said, look at verse 7. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. Is that He heard the warning, but he really didn't believe this. And so he had to send some people to investigate. Did it really happen? And not only did it really happen, was there really a distinction where Egypt's livestock just died and, Israel, and Israel's didn't? He didn't believe this thing. So that's what he does. He goes and investigates it. He investigates the matter and finds out that God did really make a distinction here in this plague. And what we learn from this, from this first plague, this plague with the livestock is that pharaoh makes promises you know he he makes promises he'll continue to make promises he made a promise in exodus 8 that if god would just take this away i'll, I'll let the people go and what does he do he doesn't he lies he makes promises and he doesn't fulfill them he never keeps them but this is not so with the lord the Lord makes promises. He does not make empty threats. What he said he was going to do, he did. And he did it exactly how he said he would do. He did exactly what he said he would do if they continued to refuse to obey. God does not make empty promises, cross-friends. He does not make empty threats either. He does what he says he's going to do. But you do, you know what makes empty promises? Sin. Sin makes empty promises. What Pharaoh is thinking right now in his sin is like, nothing's going to happen to me. It's not going to be a big deal. This isn't even going to happen. Like, like, that's why he had to go investigate these things. Because in a sin, he's thinking, these things are actually going to come to fruition. And that's what sin does. It deceives us into thinking, deceives us into thinking that what God says is not really going to come true. It's not really going to be that bad. Sin, it promises and assures you of things that it can't make good on. Sin will convince you that it will bring no harm and no consequences and no lasting effects. Sin says God will not do anything different to you than what he's doing to you now. It makes you promises that you will be satisfied with what sin offers you. But congregate, people, please listen to me when I say this. Sin will never satisfy you. Sin will never bring the outcome that you ultimately want. 
Pharaoh's sin here and his rebellion, his rejection, does not bring him his desired result, ultimate healing. And I'll just say this right now. Many of you might be in a situation right now that sin is actually giving you some good stuff right now. Right now, you may be walking in a pattern of sin, and you've experienced no You've experienced no pain. You've experienced no turmoil. You've experienced no discipline over it. Let me just say this. That won't last long. Stop. Sin will never give you what you want ultimately. Maybe temporarily. It's a, it's a mist. But it will never satisfy. So it will be with Pharaoh. And that is what he's learning here with the death of the livestock. The death of Egypt's livestock should be the first sign that sin and rebellion are not going to work out well for us or for Pharaoh. And in this next sign, in the plague of boils, God doesn't even give Pharaoh a heads up. He just inflicts. Look at number two. God is not only the God of beasts, he's also the God of boils. Have you ever had an injury, maybe a wound that was just so sensitive that every time you breathe, you remember it. Ever had that kind of thing? You know, I, a couple weeks ago, Dale Lee had hurt his arm, and I went to kind of, kind of pat him on the side, pat him on the shoulder. I didn't even think about it. And you know, he now I know that's usually people's response. I mean, I I get it. Like, like I get it. People are scared of me. But you know, when you got that, you have that wound or you have that injury, and you're just kind of always touchy feely with it every time. You know, you, you breathe. You just, you you cannot forget that it's there. Maybe like with a back pain. You ever pulled your back out or something like that? Every breath is just a reminder that you are not operating the way that you should be. Well, this plague has that similar effect on the Egyptians. That's no longer just inconvenience. It's no longer discomfort. It's no, it, it is discomfort. But this actually affects them and their bodies. It's a constant reminder. This pain is a constant reminder that they are under the judgment of God for their rebellion. That's what the boils are doing. And so look what look what Moses, what, look what Lord tells Moses to do. Take handfuls of soot, throw it in the air. And it's going to become boils. And if, if you want to trace out this word boils, it, some of you actually may be familiar with it from our Job study. The word boils happens a couple times in the Bible. One time it happens in Deuteronomy 28. And it's actually, what's really interesting, is that it's the consequences on Israel if they break the covenant. It says, if you break the covenant, you're going to experience boils like the Egyptians had. And not only does the word occur there, it occurs in Job chapter 2, verse 7. Y'all remember when Job was inflicted with boils on his skin from the soles of his feet to the top of his head? And he's in agony and pain. This is what this plague's doing. This is the nature of it. And that this affects everybody. It affects it affects people, it affects the beast, and not only that, it affects who? The magicians. The magicians are now under such severe pain that they can't even stand before Moses, they're in that much pain. I can't even get out of bed this morning to even try and attempt what they just did, which just ultimately says this, game, set, match. 
Game, set, match. It's over. Your guys, Pharaoh, that you've been trusting in, that you've been putting a lot of confidence in, they can't even get out of bed to try and defend you over here. That's how much control God has. They can't even stand before Moses. And what we're seeing here is that God, he does have control over all creation. He has control over all animals, but he even has control over bodily functions and operations, right? That this God can inflict boils and sores, sicknesses and diseases, but he is also a God who can heal any affliction, disease, and sickness. The God of the Exodus has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ who being God himself shows that God is able to inflict and to heal any affliction. Listen to how Jesus' ministry starts in Matthew 3. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teacher in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and paralyzed, and he healed them. The God of the Exodus is also the God who heals people in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God, Jesus is showing him, showing them, I'm, I'm God. And this God, he inflicts, but he also heals any affliction. The death of Egypt's livestock is a forewarning of their imminent future if they continue down this path. Like we said, is that this plague right here with the death of their livestock, it's kind of pointing forward as a prequel to the death of their firstborn and ultimately to their death, what they're going to experience at the Red Sea. It's paving the way for these things. But the boils, the boils, it's a forewarning of the ultimate and imminent day for all those who reject Christ. As we've said before, God's judgments in the past will look like a lot of his judgments in the future because the God of the Exodus will be at work on Judgment Day. If you would, turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 16. We turned to this book a couple weeks ago and we saw that the plague of the water turning to blood. And we saw that that same plague seems a lot similar to what God's going to do in the future on Judgment Day when He judges His enemies. Same thing with the boils. Listen to this, Revelation 16, verse 3. I'm sorry, not verse 3. Verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Those in opposition to God are experiencing the God of the Exodus is now the God of the final judgment, right, on those who oppose him. And look at what they do. You would think with such pain and agony that they're experiencing in their bodies, they would say, I, I'm done. I don't know about you, but I'm, uh, I'm those one, one of those people who doesn't have a high level of pain tolerance. Like clipping my fingernails too close is a little, it's a little too much for me. So you would think people would be like, I'm done. Like one boil is enough. 
But listen to what happens in 16, chapter 16, verses 10 and 11. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish, gnawed their tongues. They were in so much pain, they're biting their tongues. And in doing so, verse 11, and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores, sores. They did not repent of their deeds. They're in so much pain and so much turmoil where you would think a person would just say, I give up, I'm, I give in, it's over. But no, their pain and their sores and their turmoil breeds more indignation, breeds more rebellion, breeds more resistance. The pain, because of their stubbornness of heart, does not lead them to acceptance and repentance. And let me just say to, to you this this morning, Maybe you're watching online, maybe you're in here this morning, and you are struggling with a pain, and it has only made you more indignant against God. I hate God for the pain that he has caused me. I hate God for this, this, this thing that I've got going on in my body. I hate God for it, and it's only pushing me more and more to rebellion, to resistance. Let me just say this. Pain has a purpose in our life, and it's not to drive us away from the Lord, but drive us nearer to the Lord. And that does not mean that he is going to instantly remove or relieve you of your pain immediately. Maybe that comes on the final day when you meet Christ face to face. But this morning, pain is not meant to lead you away from Christ, but to lead you towards Christ, to faith and repentance. And you would think that this would be the case in Exodus 9 if you came back there. You would think that such pain on, on Pharaoh and the Egyptians and on his slaves and on his magicians would, would do the trick. But yet his heart is still hard towards the Lord. And what the Bible says here in verse 12, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. We've seen this back and forth. Pharaoh hardens his heart, the Lord hardens it. Pharaoh hardens his heart, the Lord hardens it. Which one's true? Yes. Both, right? You don't have to pick one or the other. Yes, and amen to both. But at this point, we're seeing what we've talked about before, a Romans 1 kind of situation, where people give themselves into sin and more sin and more sin, and God sends more warnings and more warnings and more warnings. And then in, Re in Romans 1, God just says, he gave them over to it. And this seems to be the point here in Exodus chapter 9, verse 12, is that Pharaoh continues to resist, to push back, to rebel, even though the warnings have been given out. And he pushes back and pushes back and pushes back. Pushes back until the Lord hardens his heart. And man, if the boils and the death of the livestock aren't bad enough for Pharaoh, God is about to really rain on Pharaoh's parade. 20 joke, I know. But this is what God does. God is not just in control of human bodies. He is not just in control of the animals. He is also in control of the weather. Look at verses 13 through 26. God sends the plague of hail. And uh, many of you may have a love-hate relationship with weathermen. But as we all know, they got a 50-50 shot, right? 50-50 shot. 
either going to rain or it's not going to rain, except in Baton Rouge. And nobody, it's like nobody can tell what it's going to do, right? But that's what weathermen do. They make predictions, estimated, calculated predictions, right? But they ultimately don't control the weather, right? They don't. But for the one who does control the weather, he does not make predictions, right? He makes promises because he does control the weather. And it looks like it's going to hail in Egypt. Look at what the Lord says. He tells Moses in verse 13 to rise up early in the morning and go and present yourself toward Pharaoh. And again, tell him, let the people go so that they may serve me. Because here's what's going to happen in verse 14. I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people. Pharaoh's about to experience the full force of the plagues on him for his rebellion. So that he will know who Yahweh is, who he's really messing with. This is God's warning to Pharaoh. It's kind of like what the United States does when they're in conflict with somebody and it's, it's gotten heated. They'll say something like, the full force of the United States Navy or Air Force or Army is about to come at you. That, that's meaning is that we, the United States, will utilize all weapons and resources with pinpoint accuracy and effectiveness if you continue in this path. And that the enemy will know who they are messing with. And this is what God's warning him Pharaoh, in verse 14, you are about to experience, Pharaoh, and your your land, the full force of who God is. You're about to feel it. You're about to get it, right? So that you will know just who God is. That you will know, in verse 14, that there is no one like Yahweh among the earth. In all the earth. And, And God gives Pharaoh a little bit of perspective in verse 15. Look what he says. For by now, I could have put my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. Pharaoh, I could have killed you at any point by now. I could have taken you out and your people out. It's like those videos that you watch of a person. You know a person is a martial artist expert, and another person comes and tries to pick a fight with them without unknowingly knowing that they're like an expert in martial arts. And, you know, the martial artist, like, lets them throw a couple punches, a couple kicks, you know, makes them look kind of stupid. They don't know. They think they're in the fight or something like that. But all the while, you know, this martial artist could end them at any moment, right? Could end them at any moment, right? And this is what God's doing. Pharaoh, I could have ended you at any moment if I wanted to. I have no obligation to keep you alive. I have no obligation to be to continue to warning you and giving you signs. And let me just say this, Cross Point, is that, man, take this into consideration. God has no obligation to keep showing mercy and grace to us in our sin. Unbeliever, if you're here this morning, God has no obligation to keep you alive in your rebellion and sin. But because he gives you another breath, even in this moment, it is a sign of God's mercy and grace to you. It is a sign of God's mercy and grace to you. That he would not bring judgment upon you. And you know what that mercy and grace is for? Unbelievers, if, you, if, you, if you're listening, just listen to this. 
God is keeping you alive that you may realize his kindness to you and his kindness would lead you to repentance. That's why God is sustaining you even right now, what Romans 2, 4 says. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Right now, unbeliever, if you're listening to me, if you hear the sound of my voice, please listen. God has shown you mercy thus far so that you would realize and come to a knowledge of his mercy and repent and trust in Christ. And you can do that this morning. Christian, listen to this. God is sometimes merciful to us in our sin, in our stupidity, in our stubbornness. Praise God for that, right? Praise God for that. And there is a reason that God has kept Pharaoh alive this long. Is that Pharaoh, what verse 16 says, is going to be the instrument that God uses to expand his name, his glory, globally. Pharaoh's going to be that instrument. And it's really interesting that Paul, he quotes this verse. Apostle Paul quotes this verse in a very infamous passage in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 9. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. Is that Paul will say, I'm going to use that verse in Exodus 9, verse 16. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Listen to this, verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Can you accuse God of injustice? Can you accuse God of being unfair? By no means. By no means. What God is doing here in Exodus chapter 9 is according to his good and gracious and sovereign will. And nobody can stick the finger up at God and say, how could he? Good, because he's merciful and he's sovereign. And this is what he does. He's so good and merciful to Pharaoh that he even pinpoints Pharaoh's sin. Look at what he says, verse 17. You are still exalting yourself. After all this, after all the warnings I've sent to you, Pharaoh, you are still exalting yourself. The sin of Pharaoh is self-exaltation. And brothers and sisters in Christ, the sin of some of us is self-exaltation. We are better. We deserve better. I look at those people over there. Look how their life's going. Man, golly, I'm glad I'm not like them. Man, they should have made better choices like me. Then they'd have a life like mine. I'd be a sinner to say I've never had those thoughts that sometimes we put ourselves in the position of God to say, I am the one whom everyone should look up to. I am the one who everybody should want to be like. I am the one who should be, be given the power and the authority. And let me just say this, that is a very dangerous sin to have in your heart. And it's the very sin that Pharaoh has dwelling in his heart. Self-exaltation. I am better, and I deserve better. 
maybe you're at this point thinking, man, this is really just not fair for them, what we do. It seems kind of like a little harsh, God, a little, a little unjust here. But look what God does in verses 18 through 19. Regard, all these things, he's, he's warned them, and then he warns them again. He says, look, this thing's coming, the hailstorm's coming. Take your livestock, take your animals, take your servants. Go find shelter and refuge so that this plague does not kill you. God is still in the business of being merciful and warning these people. Even Pharaoh, right? That God graciously gives instructions for those who seek refuge and salvation from this hailstorm. Why would God do something like this? Because he is exactly what Exodus 34 says. He is the God who is merciful, gracious, compassionate, showing forgiveness and steadfast love to a thousand generations, but by, by no means will clear the guilty. The God who has been interacting with Pharaoh and Egypt this whole time and been just resisted, now he is still warning them. He's still warning them. And this is the response of the people in verse 20 and 21. That those who feared and paid attention to the Lord and heeded his instructions would be rescued from the hail. So God is not only warning people, he's also extending an invite for salvation. He's saying, this is going to happen, you can find salvation here. This is going to happen, judgment's going to happen, but you can find refuge here. That's who God is. And he doesn't just extend the invitation to Israel. Even the Egyptians get in on these benefits. Even some of them pay attention to the word. But there's also another group here. Another group who has seen all these things, heard all these warnings. They've experienced loss. And yet still, what verse 21 says, did not pay attention to the word. They reject the invitation. And they experience the judgment in verses 22 through 26. And this plague is a huge deal. This isn't just golf ball size hail. These things are breaking trees, what it says. This is devastating to the land and to humanity. But you have these two different types of people. Those who heeded God's instructions and took refuge, and those who did not and experienced judgment. And what Jesus says is those two, those two types of people, they still exist today. Matthew 7. Verse 24 through 27. You know these. That therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears the words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell with a great crash you know what distinguishes these two groups of people what did they do with the word of the lord they both heard it one dismissed it and one believed it and did it the same is true in exodus 9 they hear the judgment coming they're given the invitation and yet there's still two groups of people and it all hinges on this how will you respond to the Lord? 
in his words. One's experience, one's experience of future judgment hinges on what you do with the word of the Lord. Will you pay attention to it? Will you heed it? Will you dismiss it? And I would just ask you this morning, this morning, how will you respond to God's word this morning? Belief, unbelief, obedience, disobedience? Will you pay attention and heed his instruction to repent and put your faith in Christ? To flee from sin? Or will you be like the Egyptians who disregarded it and did not pay attention to the word of the Lord and experienced judgment? This is the call this morning. God is extending a warning to you. Flee from the coming judgment that is to come. And he invites you to take refuge in Christ. Number four, this. Pharaoh's false repentance. You know, some of you may have this line, don't say you love me. What? Show me you love me. Right? Don't say you're sorry. Show me you're sorry. How many times I have said that? To my children, to be clear. <laughs> I can say that because Myra's not in here. The sincerity of Pharaoh's sorry will be proven and evidenced by his actions. Because words are meaningless if they are not followed by action. And look at where Pharaoh's gotten to in verse 27. The pain and the hail is just too much, right? It's too much. Seems as though the hail did him in. The hail storm got him right with the Lord. It woke him up. And look at how Pharaoh responds in 27 through 28. This time, I've sinned. The Lord is in the right. And I and my people are in the wrong. Plead, pray to the Lord for me. Pharaoh has all the components of genuine repentance. Almost. Pharaoh confesses. He acknowledges his sin. His people's sin. Their wrongdoing. There is contrition. There is pleading for mercy. There is even promise for change. Ideally, cross point ideally for the most part this is what anyone who is in christ this is how they should respond when they come to a knowledge of their sin is that when we come to a knowledge of our sin when when we recognize it there should be brokenness over our sin we should acknowledge it confess it right that God is right and I am wrong. Do you find any of these components in your life when you sin? When you come to a knowledge of your wrongdoing? Let me just say this. Maybe you're one of those people that you struggle or maybe you even refuse to say, I am wrong. You are right. If that is you, you may not be a Christian. Because the gospel begins with saying, I am wrong and God is right. That's where the gospel begins. It begins with saying, I am wrong, I am in the wrong, and God is right. I have failed, and God has stayed perfect. I have sinned, and God has shown mercy. If you struggle or even refuse to say, I am wrong, 
the gospel is not good news for you. It will never be. Because it begins by saying, I'm wrong and God is right. God is right. And Pharaoh has these components. And I would just say this. Our sin should really disturb us, Tulsa Home. It should really be a problem for us where it leads us to confession. It leads us to acknowledgement. It leads us to saying, I'm wrong. God is right. He even promises and confesses that there will be change. That's what Pharaoh says. But Moses can see right through it, right? Moses isn't fooled because Pharaoh wants relief without repentance. He wants change without contrition, right? He doesn't even want change in his own life. He just wants his situation to change, right? He doesn't want to change. He wants the surroundings to change. He wants relief without repentance. And some of us this morning look just like Pharaoh. And we need to stop before we become the object of God's severe mercy. Is that maybe some of you this morning, you are sad about sin, but you don't care to change it. Maybe you want to make deals with God to relieve you of your current situation, but don't really want to change anything about your life. Let me just say this. This is what one author says. And hear me clearly. He says this, any repentance that does not lessen our impulse to commit the same sin again is not genuine repentance. Any repentance that does not lessen our desire, does not give us more remorse over that same sin and a lessening of wanting to commit that sin again, we have not genuinely repented. It's not enough to say, I'm sorry, and I really hate that sin, but there's something deep in me that still wants to do it again, and I really want to do it again, and I probably will do it again, and I probably won't be bothered by it. That is not genuine repentance. Genuine repentance says, I am wrong, God is right, and I hate that sin because it promises me things that it cannot, cannot fulfill. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. God sees through our insincere repentance. He sees through our empty promises to Him. Oh, I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. He sees through our fake tears. He sees through our desire for temporary relief rather than real repentance. Just as Moses saw through Pharaoh's, God sees through ours. He sees through our fake and false repentance now. He will see through it on Judgment Day. This morning, if you have no contrition over your sin, if you desire no change, then you probably aren't in Christ. And if that is the case, God is warning you right now through His Word and invites you to take refuge in Christ Jesus. He is the God who warns and invites. This morning, you don't have any I'm not saying I'm wrong. I'm not saying God is right. If you're there, you are in sin and rebellion against God. And he is warning you right now through his word to stop, to relax, and he invites you to come take refuge in Christ Jesus from the coming judgment. If you're a Christian this morning, do you see this response to sin in your own life? Maybe you need to confess sin this morning. Maybe you need to reconcile with someone who you've committed a sin against. Maybe you need to invite someone into your life so that you can have accountability and help to fight your sin. Maybe you aren't trusting the Spirit to do the work of sanctification in your own life. 
that you desperately need to have victory over sin. Maybe you're in this point where you're saying, well, if I just read more Christian books or I listen to more Christian music or, or, or I, I do these things, then, then I'll have victory over sin. The Spirit has to do the work of sanctification. Maybe you've believed the empty promises that sin makes and you need to be reminded of the true and faithful promises that the gospel offers and fulfills. Wherever you're at this morning, both groups, believer and unbeliever, we all need the gospel. We need the gospel to save us and we need the gospel to keep us, help us fight sin and false dependence. And the gospel is this. God is the creator of the heaven and the earth, and he has created us to worship and obey him. And we, each one of us, have failed in doing so. We have sinned and transgressed against this holy God, who, as we see in Exodus 9, he will judge sin and rebellion, ultimately and finally, on judgment day. And every one of us will have to stand and give an account before God. And if we stand on our own, we will fail and experience the judgment. But God is not only a God of warnings, he's also a God of invitations. And he invites and he extends the invitation. You don't have to experience judgment. You don't have to experience wrath. You can experience life and refuge and salvation in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he has done in his life, death, and resurrection. If you repent and pay attention to his word and heed his instructions and turn away from your sin and fling yourself on Christ Jesus. And that this Christ is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And guess what? We'll stand before God in Christ Jesus and we will have nothing to worry about. We therefore will not stand condemned, but we will stand in Christ with his righteousness. This morning, receive this congregation from Exodus 9. God is warning you, but he's also inviting you to receive salvation in the Son of God. Heed his warnings and receive his invitation. love you and I thank you for your word. It is a warning to me, God, to fight sin, to not give in to the deceitfulness of sin and how it promises things that it cannot give. Lord, I ask, God, for us as a body, we would fight sin in our individual lives and our corporate lives, God, in our church. Lord, what we all need, whether we stand apart from Christ or in Christ, we still all need the good news of the gospel. Let us take heart in that. In Christ's name we pray these things.